0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the We Are Children's Division podcast. Again, I am Daryl Missy, uh, the director of Children's Division. I am here with uh, a large group of people, but as always, as always, here uh, with Ashton Kiever, uh, our producer and uh, communications guru. That's what I just call her. The communications. Guru. So, how how are you doing today, Ashton?
1: I'm doing great, Daryl. How are you?
0: I'm just terrific. I've got a room full of people. It makes me happy. So, uh, the the topic today is uh, CAN Prevention, because this is CAN Prevent Child Abuse and Neglect Prevention Month, right? So, So as is appropriate for prevention, we have our deputy director that deals with prevention here, uh, Daniel Corley. Daniel, how are you today? I dare do. I'm doing well. Thank all you. right. We're not going to talk a lot to Danielle because one, she's an introvert and two, uh, we, <laughs> we dedicated a whole podcast to Danielle and, and uh, I'm sure you all enjoyed it. So I'm, I'm sure that's great. So we have we have a lot of people here in the room. We are in my office. So, you know, it's, 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 it's cozy today. We've got a lot of people in here. It's really great. So what I'd like to do is have the people around the table introduce yourselves uh, tell us who you are and what you do, and then we'll we'll go into our discussion. And uh, Haley, we'll start with you.
2: Awesome. I am Haley Musso. I'm with the State Technical Assistance Team, and I manage the Child Fatality Review
0: Program. Okay, and the State Technical Assistance Team, also known as STAT. So if you ever hear somebody say STAT, well, if you, if you hear that on like one of those you know, medical shows, that means do it right now. But, uh, if, uh, when we say stat, that's, that's your organization and you're sort of a law enforcement arm of the department of social services, right? Yeah.
2: So the majority of our staff are post-certified law enforcement officers who have statewide jurisdiction over crimes against children. Um, that's a broad range of crimes. We have a digital forensics lab where we do, um, digital forensics on computers, cell phones, and things of that nature. And then we also have um, my unit, the Child Fatality Review Program. And and we are not post-certified, um, but the vast majority of us are. And we also employ a dog.
0: The dog is the dog yes. post-certified. <laughs> Yes, he is. The dog. Is dog. <laughs> You're not, but the dog is. That's very should uh, Get him on the podcast. Yeah. That, that's a that's a great idea. That's that's like those old TV shows. What lassie? What lassie? <laughs> oh, they fell in the well? Oh, okay, that's really um, great. Liz, why don't you go next?
3: Hi, I'm Liz Teetsort, and um, I am the program specialist, and I. Um, oversee the critical event review process for the agency, and my main role is when there's a critical event involving um, children that are either in our care or we've had prior involvement with, I review that event in hopes of learning from um, these events.
0: Thank you, Liz, and I get a lot of emails from you, right? You you, you send emails about those, and I (laughs) I see them, so thank you very much for being here in person and not in cyberspace. It's nice to have you actually in my my office. Uh, Elaine, you want to...
4: Hi, I'm Elaine Castile and I am a program specialist in our prevention units with Children's Division. I oversee some of the contracts around um, intensive in-home services, family unification services, our um, crisis care program, um, our family centered services program, and some of the big pieces of prevention that we do for the state. I'm super excited to be here and talk about my favorite topic, which is prevention.
0: Um, thank you. It's, it's, I'm, I'm excited about it, too. You have no idea how yeah. excited I am about it to talk about it. Now, as I, I advertised to everybody, as I explained to everyone, uh, Children's Division and, in fact, the state of Missouri cannot do these things alone. Right. And so uh, we have a lot of private partners out there and uh, a representative of one of those organizations is sitting here in the room. So, so Denise uh, Cross, why don't you go ahead and, and uh, introduce yourself to us and tell us what you do. Um,
5: it's It's great to be here. I'm Denise Cross. I'm the chief strategy officer with Missouri Coalition for Children, and we are a member organization of community-based uh, providers from across the state that work with kids and families every day alongside many of your staff and, and many other partners and communities. So um, these are all of our families and all of our kids, so it takes all of us really working together to help support them. So glad to be here and talk about how we can do that better.
0: All right, so we, we, we lovingly around here call your uh, call your organization Mecca. MACA, Mecca. Mm-hmm. Mac
5: he calls MCC now. Is that, is that what yeah.
0: it is? Yeah. Call it, call it something. What did, you, what did you do before that? What were you doing before you went to MCC?
5: <laughs> well, I've done a lot of things. I know, I that's why I'm asking. i was a car hop at AW. <laughs> 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 um, excellent. So excellent, excellent. Um, I've, I've had the pleasure of doing many wonderful things. So right before I came to the coalition, I was the president and CEO of Cornerstones of Care which is a large community-based organization in, that serves children in Missouri and Kansas. And prior to that, I had the opportunity uh, to work for the Department of Social Services as the, um, at my last position, was the Director of Family Support Division. So I have a long history in, in uh, public agencies and private agencies and now in
0: coalitions. Well, and then once upon a time, you were the director of this organization, right? I was the director,
5: yes. Well, yes, the director that was responsible for the children's division.
0: That's right. Right, right. And at at that time, it was called the Division of Family Services, right? That's correct. Right. So I sometimes still yet will lapse back into the old name. You know, I kind of made fun of it when they changed the name, but, uh, cause it was the same time that Prince, uh, the, the singer Prince stopped being Prince and started becoming <laughs> the artist. So I thought, oh, we're we'll branding like Prince. Uh, I thought Formerly known as. Formerly known That's right. We are formally known as. On my, on a few of my orders, I stopped after I thought, okay, I've made my point. I, I, I just referred to. The Children's Division as the Capital A Agency, <laughs> formerly known as the Division Family. <laughs> uh, but that's, little did you know, little did I know, I'd <laughs> be here. No, the okay. reason the reason I like for Denise to 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 uh, you know give us all that history, including A and W, that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, you know, because the, the the breadth of experience you bring to us, and uh, you've been a great help to me because you know we've had a lot of conversations. Yeah. And Denise has shared a lot of wisdom, and I, I'm just thrilled that you're willing to come and be here and be part of this today because uh, I, I think I think it helps us a lot. So thank you very much for being here Happy for, to do it. for what you're doing here and for, for having helped me along. So uh, we will we will start we will we will start talking about uh, substance now that we've all gotten to know each other. A- anyway, yeah. we're we're going to have Haley and Liz talk about uh, you know the data around critical events and 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 how we acquire that, and what it's showing us. So uh, you all can just go ahead and tell us what's on your mind.
2: So I can start and kind of give an overview of the statistics that the Child Fatality Review Program captures. So we're a panel-based system, um, including local panels in each county where a multidisciplinary team gets together and reviews um, certain deaths. So any death that is, you know, unwitnessed, potentially preventable, um, bizarre in circumstance, and things like that, they're reviewed. They enter data into an online system, and we collect that data and um, generate an annual report from that. So I'm going to hit some highlights, and then I'm going to go into an emerging issue that we're identifying. Uh, our most recent published annual report is from the calendar year 2021. And in 2021, the panels marked 102 infant deaths as sleep-related. significant. Um, in 2021, of all infants who died from non-medical causes, so there, there are a high number of natural deaths, right? <clears throat> of all infants who died from non-medical causes, 81% were related to the infant's sleep environment.
0: So are we talking about co-sleeping? Are we talking about how they're positioned? Are we talking about what's in the crib with them or all of this? One?
2: Yes, sir, all of the above. So, so another way to put this is we are losing one infant every four days to deaths that are so preventable, shouldn't happen. So the importance of discussions around safe sleep practices, accessibility of um, pack-and-plays or safe sleep environments are, are so important. Um, And then, you know, kind of moving on to another big issue we have, right? In 2021, 40 Missouri children died by suicide.
5: Mm -hmm.
2: That number is rising and has risen over the past few years. Is that for all children of all ages? Yes. so, So our language is up to 18. Okay um, 63% of child suicide victims had a recent personal crisis. So those are defined as, um, among other things, family discord, an argument with parents, problems with social media, bullying, and other school problems. Um, there are a plethora of, you know, circumstances that our panels can mark online. And those were some of the bigger ones. Um, it just kind of shows you how almost impulsive these decisions can be and how big these problems can seem. Um, and now moving on to kind of a more concerning emerging and, and fast-paced issue. Um, in 2021, there were six poisoning fatalities under five years old. Five of those were due to fentanyl with the other being due to maternal drug use. So we're unclear of what that maternal drug use looked like, but the rest of those were due to fentanyl. And I had my team pull preliminary information for 2022 and we're currently showing that there are 18 poisoning fatalities under five years old. Nine of those are due to fentanyl with an additional due to fentanyl mixed with other drugs what so we're identifying in the talks after during the autopsy process. Well,
0: Hayley, I'm not great at math. <clears throat> because if I had been great at math, uh, I probably would not have gone to law school because <laughs> but but all lawyers can both multiply and divide by three because that's how we figure up fees sometimes. So that's a threefold increase, right?
2: Yeah, it's mm-hmm. significant. I mean,
0: that's a that's a huge jump, right?
2: And and what I pulled out was under five because I feel that sometimes though that's that's an age group <clears throat> right where we're um, you know, accidental and touching the surface or, um, you know, getting a hold of this by, by happenstance and by accessibility. If we're leaving what we're using out on the coffee table or on the bedside table and and things like that. Um, I didn't have her pool, you know, above that. We are seeing, I can tell you, we are seeing this issue in um, teens who are using maybe other substances that fentanyl is now in.
0: Sure. Right. So those, those are, those are a distinct, I think you're right yeah. because those are a distinct thing. I mean, we've got, we've got teenagers, you know, using substances themselves. It's, it's, it's tragic, but not, not something that's completely new for us. Right. right. It's, it's when you have a substance like fentanyl where, I mean, you don't have to ingest it, mm-hmm. right? You just touch it.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, to have 18 kids up from six, uh, to have touched it and wound up dying—it's just a tragic thing.
2: Yeah, it's a very fast-moving issue, um, and Liz can speak to this. So we kind of cover our, our circles overlap some, right? With Liz covering fatalities as well, um, Liz captures a lot more than I do than our program does. Um, but we are seeing this trend continuing into this year significantly and rapidly.
3: <clears throat> yeah. And so as, as Haley said, I, I um, review fatalities where children's division has either had recent or current involvement um, with the family. And as she said, um, we review those and we're trying to look for these trends, the commonalities. Like what, what are we seeing that um, we can approach from a in, like seeking that improvement opportunity? If we can review these on a trend um, basis and um, as she said, the trend we're seeing is five and under. And accessibility to fentanyl. Um, they're touching surfaces where it has been used. Well, kids under the age of five, hands go into mouths. Mm-hmm. Everything goes into your mouth. And the amount of fentanyl needed for a child to overdose is minuscule, minuscule. And so, um, it, it, it takes nothing. And the thing that I have learned recently. Is fentanyl is she said I think briefly is it's being mixed with other substances and so there is Narcan. Narcan is available and a lot of our EMS, law enforcement, responding, first responding agencies carry that. And if there is an unresponsive individual, that is what they're administering first. So if they have been exposed to fentanyl, that's going to begin to reverse the effects. They still need medical attention. You must seek medical attention after Narcan has been dispersed. But what we're seeing now. With fentanyl being mixed with other drugs it's not touching the overdose of the other drugs um and so again medical attention is is a that de- desperate need once narcan's been dis- dispersed and um but the yeah I can't I can't I think hit any harder than what Haley said is seeing what you said as well uh director Missy is triple fold in, in a year's time of seeing five and under having accessibility to to fentanyl. Um, and so part of my job within the critical event review processes for the children's vision, as I said, is not only looking at what children's division involvement looked at, but the full system. It's not just children's vision has been involved in these families' lives. Um, I think I, I agree with you hundred percent when you say um, this is a more than us issue. I this is an issue that we have to communicate to everyone so we can work together, um, to, to address this. It's, it's not a standalone issue within children's division. It's, we we have to look at, um, the other agencies that have touched law enforcement, um, uh, mental health services, substance use, um, treatment facilities. There are so many hands involved in our families' lives, um, that with just this poisoning aspect, um, uh, in, in, in the forefront of what we're talking about right now, um, they can help us with, with discussing prevention, but also these other pieces, safe sleep, suicides. Um, it, it's a large system issue that I think all of us have to to
0: take the table and discuss. Mm-hmm. So any other trends you've all seen besides the, the fentanyl tragedy, which is just, mm-hmm. I mean, I think about I think about the fact that law enforcement, you know, they're wearing gloves and long sleeves and making sure that they don't touch it. And they're adults, you know, little kids, the idea of little kids getting their hands on it's a tough thing. It's, anything else you think?
3: you know i would just hit on um safe sleep some more honestly mm-hmm. um it is something i we are a member of the uh safe, safe sleep, sleep coalition yeah safe sleep coalition um numerous agencies are members of the safe sleep coalition and we i think it's since 2017 does that sound right um they have developed a strategic plan to try to um develop tactics and and, and uh strategies to get messages out there um in in regards to what does a safe sleep environment look like? Um, And so I think we can almost couple it with what does a a safe environment look like in general if you're leaving a child there? Um, Okay, if you have a child under the age of one, what does a safe sleep surface look like? Um, But I think going a step further, and honestly, just tying it in with everything else, you can say what does a safe environment look like um, if there's weapons in the home? if there's drugs in the home and just having those conversations and, and what would you do if you left your child with somebody else? And what would you have that environment to look like? I mean, I saw a commercial for, I don't know what the other day, but it depicted a dad laying
5: on the couch mm-hmm. with his baby asleep, both of them asleep. So, I mean, it really is more about some of it, I think is, is uh, about environment, right? Um, you know, do, do parents do, does the household have access to a bed for a child mm-hmm. that's their own? Um and um, just uh you know there's just so much awareness around there around that that issue in particular that i th- I think also it's probably one of the causes that we could probably really impact if we were very intentional about it, you know, I mean, when you think about um moms leaving the hospital with baby you know what are we talking to them about and are we talking to every mom about this or only some moms and you know you're thinking about what is uh, if you're you don't have a lot of space in your home and what are your options of where your children sleep and how can you make that a safe place you know I mean I hear stories from my grandmothers and great-grandmothers about putting babies in Dress, dresser drawers, right? Mm-hmm. But they weren't going to roll out on the bed, off the bed, onto the floor, right? So, right. I mean, all of those things that you really have to think about. What's going to be the safety plan for that particular home and that particular household, given where they're at? You know,
0: um,
5: which takes it down a whole kind of all of those all of those issues that play into that. Yeah.
0: What What I'm hearing you say with regard to the sleep is that is that it almost, it, it's it's almost like we have to be intentional and thoughtful about sleep and not just have it happen naturally whenever it happens, wherever it happens, because accidents happen, right? I mean, what I'm hearing you say is that this is like an accident. There's a picture that uh, my wife thinks is adorable, and I did too, where I was on the couch watching football, and my, my infant daughter, who is now, you know, 25, uh, was on my chest. And we had fallen asleep together. And it's a great picture. And knowing what I know now, that was a dangerous moment. Right. I mean, I I just didn't, I did not know that. I don't think people, most people know that, that, that these are dangerous moments that we have to be sure that if we're with an infant, that we're awake. And if they're asleep, they're where they're supposed to be, where they're asleep, because she could have fallen behind me and suffocated. And, I mean, that kind of thing can happen, like, like other things. We, we have a lot of accidents, right? We have, I mean, what kind of accidental uh, deaths do we see besides sleep?
3: Well, it, I, going along the accidental realm, firearms. If a firearm is left out, accessible to a child, um, that goes along with, look. what does that safe environment look like for a child? Accessibility to a weapon as well. And so, Haley, um, I don't know if you have any information regarding the firearm deaths we've seen, but that is another trend. Um, that we have seen is accessibility to firearms uh, within a home. In
2: 2021, nine Missouri children died of unintentional firearm injuries. Um, Previously, in 2019, there were eight, and in 2020, there were two. Three of the nine in 2021 were toddlers who found guns that were owned by their parents and shot themselves. One child died when his six-year-old brother found a gun and was playing with it. Four teens were playing with guns and accidentally shot themselves and one child was deer hunting and tripped causing the gun to discharge. So these are preventable,
3: accidents. preventable so incidents, right? preventable,
2: painfully preventable. Right. Um, and I think, you know, we need to have a conversation around responsible gun ownership because absolutely we can own guns But the important part of that is owning them responsibly, um, responsibly limiting access, making sure that our our teens don't have access to them. I don't think it's an appropriate um, option anymore to say, yes, my teen knows where this gun is located, but it's locked up and, and that's fine. They know better than to touch it because we've seen in this, in this, data, and especially, specifically, the suicide data, that's not enough anymore.
0: Right. So, really, um, taking care is a piece of prevention. I mean, it is, mm-hmm. it is just being, edu- education it is a piece of prevention. Mm-hmm. Look, nobody wants their child to get a hold of a gun and shoot themselves. Uh, you know, letting people know what that danger is, you know, is a piece of our prevention work. And we're going to And we're going to be doing a whole bunch of prevention work. Let me tell you, we're going to, we're going to uh, get that uh, done and and there are great needs. So one of the things on our list here is what are our needs uh, outside of those educational things uh, in in Missouri? And, and that's, Denise was going to talk to us about that. What are our, what are our needs? What do we need? What do we need? Because, you know, Denise, I think you come, you come with a really interesting perspective because you've been involved in the system for, for, uh, you know, uh, Really Be careful!
5: <laughs>
0: no, 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 but no worse than I am because we, 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 we talk historically about the same things. We know what each other are talking about, you know, as as to what it is that that uh, where we've been and where we're going. So, what do we what do we really need in Missouri for, for prevention services? What what ought we to do?
5: Yeah, that's a, a big question, but I think there I think we have some insight um, from if we look at data and even just what you all are talking about here around the critical incidents. But I guess the first thing I would say, Daryl, though just from a global perspective is that I think the best way that we can prevent child abuse and neglect is, is to support families, right. Right. children, right? Mm-hmm. Enable children to be safely in their homes with, in communities with their families. You know, that should be to me our ultimate goal when they can be there safely. We know sometimes they can't. So but that, that's, that's, those are the, the, the few, right? They're not right. the majority. So, you know, when we look at statistics in Missouri that show, and I think this was 2019, 53% of the kids that come into care are due to neglect. Right. And then when you look at those definitions of neglect and you see that um, across the state, except for in one region, which is very interesting to me, but anyway, the, one of the top three reasons kids came into care was because of homelessness. That, that's not neglect that's about poverty and circumstance right Right. Right. and so i think you know as long as we conflate neglect with poverty and not distinguish between hardship versus harm Mm
2: -hmm. you
5: know then we have one an overwhelmed system right where we have more kids than the system can can effectively respond to um and so we've got to figure out what could we have done differently for those families that are in that 53% that one of the top three was for homelessness or or the second was mental health, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, um, what can we do then to think about how to support those families in a different way?
0: And that also means,
5: Daryl, you and I have talked about this, about a different response, right? When families are in crisis, can we create a different response, a different approach? So I think, you know, we know some things at work. And, and I don't want to take Elaine's thunder here because she's going to talk. About, I mean, she knows she's closer to the many of those services. But we know, you know, the more that we can get to families early when, yeah. they, when that first indication of challenge or struggle is, is recognized by whomever, school teacher or daycare worker or neighbor, you know, that if we can really. Connect with those families in a meaningful way to understand what's happening. Your your, your comment about the suicides um, were triggered by some kind of incident with, within right. the family or within the home, right? Well, if you look at those reasons kids come into care; it's because family disputes or you know those are, are, or or um, uh, inability to communicate well with their children. So you know those are all little indicators. Um, and so I think the more that we can recognize those things and, and, and quickly connect people. But I believe it's about, you know, in-home. It's about um, what they need when they need it. And it's about community. Um, and we all are part of the community. Um, and, and so that's when the family support worker who's taking an application for food stamps is seeing something that's kind of concerning. Or, you know, mom or dad is expressing a challenge. Well, how do we connect them with a service or an intervention that might be helpful to them?
0: And how do we get them to go do that service without fear that they're going to wind up having their family dismembered? I think that's,
5: yeah. That's a big thing. And I think that's community, Daryl. I mean, it has to be all of us. I think each of us have a role. And I think it's it's very difficult to be the enforcer of protection. And the deliverer of support,
0: right? You know, because because even if you're delivering support, eighty percent of the time, they're going to say that that one out of five times this is the person who takes my children. You know, and and I, I think that I think that we we have to we have to change our practice. I think, but we also we also have to change our our messaging and and the view out in the world. But we also I think need to get with our partners and say, look. You are, you are within your lane, and you're doing the right thing if you're helping somebody, Right. as opposed to just reporting somebody. Right. Uh, I, I tell, tell people all the time. My sister's my my sister is a social worker for the Salvation Army, and the number of people she has to pull facts out of because there are, she's a they're afraid that she's going to hotline them, yes. and she's like, "My brother has told me not to hotline you, so it's okay. Yeah. We're gonna not do that. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you a hotel voucher. We're gonna get you a space. We know you're in the back of an Oldsmobile right now. We're gonna do something different, right? And, and I think all that, yeah. you know, all that dovetails into sort of, you know, we, we talk about the plan. We've got a plan to try to, to try to change the direction, the polarity of this organization, uh, toward toward prevention. Helping, doing those things because Missouri has got you know you know double the national average of kids in foster care right. and fifth in the nation uh, in the number of kids in care per capita and it's proven to be remarkably unhealthy and and not very effective and pretty darn painful for everyone.
5: Yeah. Well, While you're building that, we have to figure out a way for families to have a different experience because right. I'm saying, I mean, we've we've been reaching out to parents who've had. Ex- experience of connections with the, with the system either as a child or as a parent and we've heard exactly that so right. they don't want to talk mm-hmm. to us or share their stories because they're afraid if they do they're vulnerable and that there are consequences and that's what they see around them so we've got
2: to change that yeah I would like to add so for those of us that have done frontline work and frontline work in a, in a little area you sometimes you are the one that goes in and tries to help this family right. and then you are the one that comes back and removes their kids. Right. Or or they know you remove so and so's kids and now you're coming and saying, No, I want to help you. Mm-hmm. You know, what? we're we're gonna help, we're gonna link you to services, but they're like, You just uh, you know, the lady down the street I saw you there and haul her kids out.
3: So what do you mean you want to help me? So, so you, you understand. It's the hard fear, to be right? Yes, it's hard. So there's a tension there. Yeah. right? There's a tension well, there. And to your point where um Instead of like I think you said Daryl where um, so you have somebody who's working with the family and that they use the threat of calling children's mm-hmm. division. Yeah. And we hear that all the time. Well, I told him I was going to call you. Why is that that response versus let me help you? How can I help you? If, if it needs to be a call to children's division, that is most appropriate, but it's also a dual lane. Well, because,
0: because uh, people know that that might scare them into doing the right thing. Well, if you don't do this, I'll have to call children's division. Like, you wait till your mom gets home, you know, kind of thing. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I handled a lot of divorce cases when I was on the bench and people would talk about calling the hotline like it was a threat, like it was a nuclear weapon. You know, it's like, well, if calling us got you help, people wouldn't threaten it in divorce cases, you know, but we're going to, we, we are as an agency, both philosophically, I think. And, and I believe we're going to get some, we're going to get some capacity uh, to actually do something different. Uh, the, the, we're getting a good hearing. I, I don't know when this will be out, as to when uh, it will have been done. But we're going to have more people, I believe, it, to to do this work, uh, to to have them move toward prevention. Our family first pro, uh, program has been approved. We're looking at throwing a whole bunch of different stuff in there, uh, besides what's in there now. Uh, and so we've been we've been we've been exploring a lot of ideas and having a lot of great conversations. So, uh, Blaine, tell us what. What are we going to do with those people when we get them and those resources? When we get them? What are we going to do?
4: Oh, we're going to use them to help keep families together in a safe way. And I, I think that the overarching idea that I've heard today is like our agency historically has been a punitive agency. We've been used to be the bad person. We've been used to go in there and really put our foot down to be the be the people who um, deliver the bad news, right? And we have to change that culture to being a helping agency that we can go in and we can really um, drive prevention work that helps increase family functioning in a way that keeps kids safely home. And in order to do that, it's a whole culture shift, right? Not just from children's division, but from our community as well. So that when when families are, being, are in need of some type of service, that our community partners actually partner with us rather than use us as the, the bad person um, and changing the idea of us being just a removal agency to being an agency, agency that can go in and actually provide services to help families figure out how to change what is probably a generational cycle of um, learned behavior, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's just a lack of family functioning, um, poverty, um, So far, so for, for so long, poverty has been seen as neglect and abuse, and that is just not the case. We know that the evidence tells us that that is not true, Um, and we have to change the whole culture. So as we are able to grow our capacity to have more workers who can have lower caseloads, right, to really, like, get in there and do the real work with helping families, and then us doing the work isn't enough. It has to then be going out into the community and partnering with them in a really impactful and thoughtful way, so that our community partners can also have the capacity to do do the work that we need them to do. Um, whether it's funding, or whether it's us having just a better idea and knowledge of what their 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 community partnerships look like and um, what their programs look like, um, so that we can partner with them in a more impact- impactful way. And give families confidence that the first knock on your door from children's division isn't always going to be a negative experience or to give our community partners confidence that they can actually do this work with families without feeling like they're obligated to call in a hotline when it's just a situation where a family really does need that support to um, figure out how to function in a more healthy way and in in a safer way with their kids. I think that it's, again, it's a whole culture shift, right? The perspective. The perception that children's division has to just be a removal agency um, is i think flawed thinking we should be a prevention agency who really looks at creative ways to keep families safely together um and i think even when there is a concern with with a family our system has been so bogged down for so long with um high caseloads challenges with staffing that's no that's no um secret right um that Workers feel, I think, trapped in having this really quick response to families. um, Whether it's quickly closing a case that they see, well, they're safe enough in their home right now today, we can just quickly close this case, Um, or we don't have the resources we need to wrap this family up with services, so we're just going to make a removal recommendation. And that sweet spot of preventing those things from happening, identifying the early prevention. Denise, you brought that up earlier. Identifying early prevention, and I think about some of these. Um, statistics that have been brought out today with some of these issues around safe sleep, around, um, you know, gun ownership, drownings, all of these things where these kiddos are getting like into fentanyl and other substances. Um, When could we have identified that concern in a way that helps us prevent and provide education to families? I I joke with people, and it's not really a joke, but I say, um, you know, parenting is one of the only things that we ask people to do with no training. We provide zero training
0: on how to be a parent. You know, I thought about that when we were talking about what do we tell these parents about safe sleep when they right. leave. I, mm-hmm. I, my mind went back to 1997. Okay, <laughs> I, was, I was a new parent, I'm driving home in my in my Saturn SL, and we've got our we've got our new baby strapped in the back, just mm-hmm. as tight as it can be. And I'm thinking, what just happened yeah. to us? And there's no manual with this child. We have no instruction book. We don't yeah. know what to do, and uh, and we were we were thoughtful, college educated people. Sure, I mean, imagine imagine some you know young young single mom yeah. uh, just just dealing with this without those helps and supports, right?
4: Yeah, and I think that that is a good point too. It's not because we're not educated that we struggle with parenting sometimes. It's just we don't always know what to do. Right. And if you don't have a support system who is there who also has experience in being a healthy protective parent, who are you supposed to lean on to learn these things? There, there's not like this universal guide that tells us how to go out and be healthy fantastic parents. Um I you know, and I think that with that thought is messaging out that prevention is powerful in that it is a very um, brave thing for a parent to ask for help. I was talking to one of our crisis care providers, and we were talking about how brave it must be for a mother to knock on the door of a crisis care facility and say, can you please take my two-year-old because I'm struggling? And what must that mother be thinking when she's making that choice. And in the back of her mind, thinking, oh my gosh, they're gonna hot my and The children's division is gonna come, take custody of my kiddo, Whether, rather than us having the ability to message out, if you go do this really brave thing and you get help, we're gonna surround you with support. Or say, nice job, mom. Absolutely. Nice yeah. job, mom. Absolutely. Absolutely. You
5: did the right
0: thing. You
5: yeah. did the right thing, yeah.
4: yeah.
0: Well, because the question is, is anything she did either abusive or neglectful? And the answer to that question is no. Right. The, the the answer to that question, she recognizing her, her lack of moment, her, her momentary lack of capacity yep. and therefore will do whatever it takes uh, to take care of that. And that's powerful. I think changing the mindset, you're working on our, maybe the act of thinking like a lawyer, maybe the actual definition of neglect, but also the the, the perception of hardship as, mm-hmm. you know, to see it as not neglect if that parent's doing everything that parent can do under those circumstances to make it okay and I think that that is a big deal that is a big shift and we're gonna we're gonna move there we've got thirteen thirteen thousand one hundred and forty two. Uh, Children in foster care Mm -hmm. at the time of this taping. Uh, I'm hoping by the time you listen to it, it's less. Uh, And I'm hoping that we're going to get to a place where it's rare, and we're doing it in a different, different way. But if you guys, so, so, you know, Elaine and Danielle, you're the, you're the, you're the tip of the spear. You're the tip of the prevention spear. Wave your magic wand. (laughs) What do we, what do we get? What do we do from here? So let's say we get those. We get those hundred new workers and that's the beginning and we get uh, and we get all kinds of community partner things going that are prevention in nature and we get things happening. What kind of things would you like to see?
4: Well, I, I mean, I think that is such a big question and it has so many piles of answers, right? I know. But that's I, why it's great for a podcast. <laughs> I, I think that some of it is education and training for our own teams, right? Like educating, ed- educating and training our teams in a way that they're able to actually go do thoughtful prevention. Um, changing that culture around making quick decisions about this parent is so unsafe. Understanding what unsafe really looks like—that can't be fixed, right? Safety and risk. Safety, Safety and, risk. and risk. That's right. It's a, it's a tricky, tricky balance. Getting back, getting back to a place where we can bring families to the table to have real functioning, transparent conversations with families to say, how can we partner with you for you to have skills to um, keep your kids safe? Who in your neighborhood, who in your safety network can we bring to the table and have these conversations? And
0: that sounds like a TDM. It does sound like a TDM. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For those of you who don't know that acronym because you're so new and they didn't exist when you got here, uh, that's team decision-making yes. uh, model. And uh, it's, it's a powerful thing uh, when it can work and get people trained to do it. Yes uh and uh and, and asking that family what can you do to take care of yourself i mean i share stories about my family when i was a kid and the struggles that we had and that's exactly what happened you know our my family gathered around and said who can do what well this grandma's going to take that baby and mom's going to go oh, you get this treatment and dad's going to work here and this grandma's going to come in and we're going to take care of it together and uh, if if you can facilitate those conversations happening with families uh, that's a powerful thing, and and we should not assume that it doesn't exist just because it's not working now. Because a lot of people, because of their substance abuse, because of their mental illness, because of whatever circumstances they have, they've alienated their support network. Reintroducing that support network often works, and I think that's a powerful thing. So I think network. we also
5: have to be comfortable though with um, <clears throat> safety. Um, looking different than what we might
0: think safety mm. should be. Yeah, that's right.
4: Mm-hmm. One of the key, um, when you go through the training for team decision-making, one of the things that they drill into your brain is parents are the experts on their own life. They're experts on their children, and we have to give them the, the back, that power. You are the expert on your family. You know what's gonna work and what's not gonna work. It probably isn't gonna look what, what, like what would work for me, but it's gonna be what works for you. And having um, the autonomy to make those really creative decisions with the families to keep kids safe. Um, and also with that, partnering with our community partners to really be able to wrap them up with services that give us all confidence that they're going to succeed in whatever plan we create. And I think that is a key too, is really partnering more with our community partners, figuring out ways to get our children's division workers more ingrained, entrenched into our partner, partners with um, our different communities, growing our crisis care um, processes, growing some of our in-home um, programs that we can help provide. Um, to families who are in need, I think is a key to sustain success for families. Um, we want to get in there and help them and then figure out how to get them stable and uh, create a plan that's sustainable and the children's division can fade away and the community can help pick pick that family up and support them.
0: Well, and I think what we need to understand is that whatever our, whatever our intervention or lack of intervention, it will not and cannot be foolproof. I mean, right. because because. None of us, and we had this conversation earlier, Danielle, maybe you can speak to that. Uh, safety cannot be elimination of all risk because we have risk. I have risk walking yeah. back to my apartment this afternoon. Mm-hmm. I have a risk, but, and we could ask, yeah. well, but what if, and what if, and what if? So why don't you speak to that, Danielle? What's the, the difference between safety and risk?
6: Well, a little scenario I have is the, you know, when you're driving down the road and you see the deer crossing sign, or do you see a deer? And mm-hmm. do you go forward with one or do you go forward with the other? One is risk, one is safety. So there's a sign or there's an actual deer there. So there's my little, in a nutshell, safety and risk.
0: Um, this comes from a person who drives up and down Highway 50 on a regular basis, right? right. You, yeah. right. There are lots of deer out there. are usually cows in the field.
6: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sunrises. But sunrises. Um, so I think that's a big piece of things. And I think getting the um, community engaged and understanding that piece of things too, our school partners... Our um, mental health providers, our drug and alcohol providers, um, like Denise said, safety doesn't look. This it, it just doesn't look. First of all, it doesn't look the same for everyone, sure. and it's not one person's responsibility. Mm-hmm. It is the responsibility of the community to make sure that we're caring for our for our people, for our kids, for our families. Um, I am excited about a day when prevention ends up in the community. And so people don't have to dive into the, the children's division system to get the services that they need. That, that is, that is an exciting thought for me. I think as you're traveling around, you are meeting with people who have things going on that we have no idea about. Mm -hmm. That's perfect to me. We don't need to know everything that's going on, except for when we get to the point that we identify something that needs to happen or change because we've looked at the data and we know that there's a there's a, n- a risk. There's a, an emerging um, circumstance that's circumstance that's causing issues for our kids. Then we need to step in and we need to see how we can help. How we can, but there may already be something going on. We don't know. But go ahead. No, I was going to say I, I I love what you're saying
5: and I I too am excited about that because I think um, as long as we only have I mean you the Children's Division has become the default system mm-hmm. for every challenge for families and for children and for communities. And so we've got to be able to create confidence, right, mm-hmm. that, that we can take a different approach and create that alternative approach so everything doesn't have to come to your door, right? right. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and where the reporting to the hotline isn't just risk mitigation. It really is mm-hmm. about, I need help for this family,
0: which mm-hmm.
5: I don't think is always the case.
0: Just that point of view to where people don't feel like they have to call and tell on their friends, their neighbors, their students, parents, or anybody else when they think what they really need is help because there's risk in coming in. You know, there's risk in staying out. Mm -hmm. There's risk involved in coming in because of all the things we see, the foster care, the impacts that it has on the emotional, uh, psychological well-being of kids and their families. Mm -hmm. Uh, it It is an intervention that has a side effect that is serious. And we have to think about, and so traumatic, right, right. And so, you know, when we talk about, so we talk about prevention, really, I use a medical analogy all the time because like, like you said, Denise, you know, the, the default thing to do is to call children's division. Well, children's Division's default thing to do is foster care because it's all we've had. It's all we've got. It would be like a medical system that had nothing but a hospital right? and you'd say, okay. We're not gonna, we're not gonna put you in the hospital until you're bad enough to go in the hospital. But your odds of becoming bad enough to go in the hospital go way up if I don't deal with your infection, with your heart disease, with whatever you have going on. I mean, the idea that we can intervene early in a, in a, in a more kind and thoughtful way, uh, it's powerful. It's exciting. And the the idea that we have the opportunity to go that way is great. And I, I, I will tell you that I've been so heartened just, just, just encouraged. When I've been out, I've gone to 46 circuits, you know, some of them, some of them twice and three times and talked to people. And, and I have received your vision surveys. I've read them and uh, people, this is where their heart is. Their heart is it, wanting to help people. And the fact of the matter is, is we've got this plan. We've presented it to the legislature about undoing the way things are done, changing it all around. And the fact is, is that was not a Word of that was written until after those visits to those 46 circuits and knowing that that's where we are, because if that's the way we feel, I believe it's what we can do. If we just get the resources to do it. And so you guys around this room and your ability to, to speak into that and to lead that and to take us into those places is a powerful thing. So I thank you all for what you do. Ashton, do you have any follow-up for us?
1: Just a reminder for everyone, as Daryl said, when we opened this uh, podcast up, it is Child Abuse Prevention Month. And uh, one of the big things that we do every year for Child Abuse Prevention Month is we pick a Friday and we wear blue. And this year, Go Blue Day is April 7th. So show up with your blue on and um, please send a picture or uh, post on social media with you and your team wearing blue so that we can blew out social media right um in in support of this great cause um i sort of just wanted to say one thing that i'm noticing um and if you're new to children's division i think you'll notice it really quickly is that a big theme across all areas of children's division right now is telling the whole story not just the story that that we're, we've been talking about at this table today, right? Like tell the whole story about the whole family, about the whole system. And um, as I've been gearing up for for foster care month and and things like that, there've been a lot of emphasis on how do we do that? How do we tell a full story? And, you know, maybe it looks like a video, maybe it looks like a social media post or, or a testimonial from, not just foster kids, not just caseworkers, but the bio parents that are involved, the full family. Um and I just am just thrilled to be a part of it. I'm thrilled to be here and helping you guys um in this grand mission to make sure everyone's voices are heard um in the family. So I just wanted to say that honestly. I'm just I'm I'm enthusiastic to be a part of this and I think it's neat to to hear where we're headed in terms of prevention and how that fits in with the grander reform plan uh, that um, Children's Division and Daryl have been working on here. So I'm just uh, I'm just thrilled to be a part of it, and I think that you guys are all so passionate.
6: It's exciting. It is exciting. I'm super grateful for the um, new allocations that you've advocated for. That I, I think that will do wonders for keeping those folks in, in the FCS realm and not using them for other things because there are going to be, even if we can get the majority of folks into the prevention realm in the community, there's still going to be a need for FCS. There's going to be a need for intensive and home services. Mm-hmm. There's there's going to be that piece of things. And so those hundred new allocations, if that's what it ends up being, it, it's it, it's going to be extremely beneficial to get this
0: going and get relationships built out in the community, well, get people out based. And, and here's here's the dream. Uh, I mean, really, and, and it's, it's, and it's in the plan and it's been, it's been, and we've talked with the legislature about it and we've talked with our own folks about it. And Ashton, that's why you're, it's so powerful to have you helping us in this because we're having these conversations in ways that we've never had them before and they're being talked about broadly and broadcast to the whole agency, uh, by these podcasts. It's, a, it's a powerful way to move our mindset, but we, we move our mindset ahead of moving our practice. And so what the hope is, is that, is that Whatever the legislature ultimately gives us, whatever resources we ultimately have, we'll be able to use those to, dec- to start to decrease the number of children in foster care. And when we do, the caseloads can come down. And then rather than, you know, cutting staff or we, we shift the emphasis, we then will have the ability to say, OK, that caseload in that circuit's OK enough that we can now shift this number of people to family centered service work, to being team decision-making facilitators. Uh, we can put them in spaces uh, like schools, uh, like hospitals, like other places where they will have partnerships with our community partners to know what resources we can put people with uh, and, and to, to completely change the polarity of the whole thing. It's, it's 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 a powerful and wonderful idea. If we get it done, uh, we could become among the best performers in the nation. Well, and just
5: And just think about how laser-focused those individuals can be if their caseloads are manageable right? right. (laughs) for those highest risk families and youth that need all of our attention all of our attention that we can give them and the ability to do that would be pretty pretty impactful right
0: we're going to get there Well, I thank you all for the conversation. I think this is a great conversation. We could probably have it all day, but you would not not listen to it all day, Uh, I don't don't think. So I wanna thank you all for coming uh, to my office and having this conversation with us. Uh, We appreciate you all. Thank you to everybody out there who've been listening uh, and uh, who have uh, have been paying attention and who are coming along as we work work to uh, do prevention here in Missouri. Thank you very much.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode. Listen to more episodes of this podcast or our newest podcast, The Call to Foster, wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help us reach and inspire more Missourians. Thanks for listening.